Hello, and welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's national feminist current affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Amy McMurtry. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from today. On today's show, we bring you some of the key stories and messages delivered from Hope Matumbu and Sue Bolton during the online forum COVID-19 Response, Healthcare and Justice, Not Racism, hosted by Socialist Alliance on Saturday, July 13th. Hope Matumbu is a queer, black, South African-born woman who has lived and worked on the sovereign lands of the Kulin Nation since 2003. Hope works in public health, radio, arts and various other community development sectors. Sue Bolton is a member of Socialist Alliance and the Victorian Socialist candidate for Wills. Hope and Sue speak to the inequities, problems, barriers and risks that exist within the current Australian public health system. Significantly, these stories come from experiences within Melbourne. Hope starts by giving us a really good description of her role as a carer and nurse for the hotel quarantine program and car park COVID-19 swab testing centres. I am a nursing student and I've got one semester left to go. Um, But because nursing students work in hospitals to do their placement unpaid, I also need a job on the side. And so what I do for a job is that I work for a nursing agency that can send me anywhere. And over the last couple of months since COVID started, I've worked in quarantine hotels and I've now worked in pop-up testing. Um, Now, when we talk about quarantine hotels, and I've worked there as a carer. So I work there as a carer and And I work underneath doctors and nurses, including mental health nurses. I also work, but the leader of the team is a DHSS staff member. And then on the side of that, there's also security um, and an authorizing officer that sort of deal with security issues. And then um, sitting next to that is people from Denant. I still didn't look that up, which is like another government agency that's sort of like transport and logistics and they sort of do like the the delivery of essential items if that makes sense. So as a carer I can either do two different shifts. I can work in the medical concierge which is an ongoing office in in a quarantine hotel that's got all these people that I described to you and my job is to sort of take phone calls um, from people who are staying there and, um, and, and then know where to refer that call. When a flight, the busiest time is usually when a flight comes in because you're trying to triage everyone. So you're asking people, do you have an existing medical condition? Yes or no. If yes, do you have enough medication for that condition? If no, then they work with the people to get the medication and that sort of thing. But we also deal with ongoing health needs. So For instance, if someone maybe wakes up with a headache or has a rash, um, then obviously that's one of the things that they'll call down for if they have kids and that sort of thing. So my job would be to, you know, take the phone calls if I can deal with it myself, like, oh, you need some nappies. I'll go to where the stock is. I'll put on some PPE. I'll go upstairs to that room, knock on the door, give it to them. I never go inside. If it's a more complex situation that that's medically related, then that goes either to the nurse 
nurse, mental health nurse, or the doctor. And if it's things that that's around exemptions, more like human rights, social sort of stuff, or maybe having a half day exemption, then that goes to the DHSS, um, who will also liaise with like the security people as well. Um, and of course, you know, there's people who are maybe due for 10 minute walks or that sort of thing. So that's when security would also get involved, like, okay, this person is going, what time are they going, then, you know, making sure that everyone knows, and then they'll take them to wherever they need to go. And obviously, people depending on their job, and they job description have different levels of PPE um, and of course there is some staff that uh, you know that are hotel staff so you know the person who's still answering the phones and that sort of thing so you also see people who are part of the hotel and of course the kitchen is still running and so those are some of the hotel staff that you may see that have been there a long time but their jobs have changed. Now the second kind of quarantine hotel shift that you can do is swabbing. When people come in we swab we offer them a swab I think it's about to change, but it's it's not mandatory. So people can refuse a COVID test, um, but we test them on day three and day 11. And I, as a PCA, accompany two nurses. One person is the clean nurse, one person is the dirty nurse. The dirty nurse is obviously the person who is doing the swab, if any of you have ever had the swab done. And the clean nurse is the person that's doing the labeling and the paperwork and will maybe open up the bag so the person can put it in because obviously infection control processes and then I'm sort of somewhere on the side in my PPE as, as well taking care of the data side of things so confirming name date of birth whether the person is staying in Victoria or going somewhere else and stuff around you know if the person refuses testing which is their right to do to write down the reason for refusal of testing um, and so some of like the public health data stuff that's that's important whether or not they take the test or not and then and then yeah that's the job and then with the drive-through testing um that's at different sites and you have three three desks essentially or three parts of the process think of it like a conveyor belt the first part is the triage so people come to your car in PPE, they ask you to, you know, name, date of birth, do you have Medicare card and or driver's license or any kind of ID, explain the test to you and make sure they've got all of that. The second, and I could be in that role or in the second role, usually in the second one, because it's my favorite, they give you the paperwork and then there's a bunch of stickers that you put on there, you label the test tube um, and and you make sure that everything is correct you put a label on things and depending on whether the person has been symptomatic or asymptomatic you put a sticker on that and then and then you also say which suburb the person is coming from and so there's like a tally of suburbs and then you put all that in like a little pathology bag that goes to the third part of the process. That's when um, the nurses or someone or someone who's qualified to do a swab will do that. So that could be like a nurse doctor or, or, or whatever else. There has been significant problems with communication and COVID-19 testing. Hope speaks to her experiences of this within the testing centres. There's, there's one method which I think is really good that came out of uh, a review in the UK where I can't remember who did it, but sorry, I wrote down the notes and then I forgot to attribute them, but local trust data isolate and support. Now I will talk about the isolate and support parts of, 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 of this framework of how to handle uh, COVID in relation to your question. So what I've seen 
in 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 the in the quarantine hotels definitely from security guards every because they are alone on each of the floors maybe one person on one side of the floor and another person on the other side of the floor when we're doing testing they are the first to flock around you what are you doing what's happening what's the update they really want to know things so i think that as a generalization, what I've seen is that they are there. They're like, can you test me? And we're like, no, you can't. And maybe they'll hang around and watch you do testing. Now, when people refuse testing, security guards are like, you're going to let them say no. And, um, and they really want to push, like, why are you letting them say no? You know, what is it? And I think human rights are important. I think that, first of all, people do have the right to refuse. One thing that we haven't talked about is the test itself. You know, some people are so scared of it, some people can't tolerate it. So pregnant women, for instance, who are stuck in the in the quarantine hotels, uh, some of them have nausea, um, you know, some people who maybe have uh, swallowing dysphagia, when we talk about people living with a disability, and when we talk about children as well. Now, people who are doing the actual physical testing all do it in different ways. For, for children, we recommend that they just go in the throat. Obviously now there's a spit test that's going around, but nobody's seen it. I haven't seen it. And so I don't know where it's it's been introduced. Um, but the thing that I've noticed, people from South Asian backgrounds, gun-ho. People from the Sikh community, gun-ho. They will give you their grandmothers, their babies. I've seen families who are staying like in the one, you know, unit and, you know, parents shouting at their little kid like, no, you can do it. You're grown up now. No, don't put your child through that. It's fine. And so that's one thing that I've noticed. When New Zealand started to flatten the curve, a lot of people from New Zealand, regardless of race or ethnicity, would, be, re would refuse and say, oh, there's no COVID in New Zealand. And I'm like, dude, you don't know anything about asymptomatic cases. Get tested whenever you can, if you can tolerate it. And that's the message I would say to people and talk to them about viral load. On the flip side of that South Asian community thing, there are a lot of people who, who, for whom English is not the first language. Or sometimes for people from Indian backgrounds, sometimes they've got the generalized, you know, just head shake, which for some of us we read as a no. Now, cross-cultural communication is also a big part of this. So if nurses are trying to get through cases and, and I'm saying to them, this person actually, you're, not, you're thinking that they're saying no or you're not trying to get an interpreter or talk to them. How Healthcare workers and, and how we do the testing for people and who we see as an Australian as, and not as an Australian is interesting. These are the same nurses where I say, if that was your mother and she was living overseas, maybe in an Asian country, wouldn't you want someone to try and get the information to her? Sue further demonstrates the issues surrounding door knocking data collection during the COVID-19 testing blitz. And then the media was starting to focus on testing refusals, saying, and, and all after the Herald Sun started with its racist campaign, the media traipsed up to Broadmeadows to looking for migrants who were refusing tests without really talking about, you know, what sort of tests, uh, you know, why people might have been refusing tests. And and then I heard from a friend of mine who was supervising a testing uh, door knocking group in Faulkner, and she said it was totally untrue that people from non-English speaking backgrounds were refusing tests. The team she was part of, only one person refused a test on the basis of thinking the virus was a hoax and that person was an Anglo. But the reasons why people were put down 
is refusing Tess in her experience with the door knocking teams in Faulkner was that whoever had got together, they, it was probably public servants doing it in a really rushed way. I don't think it was a conspiracy. I think it was the IT people who put together the data collection tool for door knockers in response to the question, will you have a test now, were given a yes, no answer. You could either say yes or no, but you couldn't put any other answer. And so people who couldn't have a test right then and there because they'd already had a test or because they couldn't do it right then but would do it tomorrow or who were unsure because they were a bit worried about the process, didn't mean they were refusing, but they needed some time to think about it or, or process the information from the door knocker. All of those people were put down as refusing tests, even though they hadn't actually refused tests. But that statistic being referred to by the government and media about refusing tests was also used as um, a sort of a bit of a way of saying that, you know, people in these hotspot suburbs were stupid because they were refusing tests when they weren't necessarily doing that. Hope speaks of specific problems within the quarantine system which point to workplace health and safety issues, which put not just staff, but all of us at risk. Also, the evidence and the stuff that's coming up now, it's always been around, but about COVID, the risk of getting it going up in enclosed spaces. Some of these quarantine hotels, the corridors are so small and so tiny. The security guards have to do 12 hourly shifts. So they're sitting there and like two of them on different sides. Some of these hotels are windowless. There's no air, there's no anything. And except for these little 10 minute walks. So, so you've got a lot of mechanisms and a lot of people who need to work in synergy or in synchronization well with each other, but that doesn't happen. Shortage of PPE and who gets it, like a hierarchy of who gets what and who's paying for what and who's not paying for what. That also affects things. Another thing that affects things is is I was told that I couldn't be swabbed on site when I needed to be swabbed, when I could have potentially, I worked somewhere where someone had tested positive. And, and that was really interesting to me. And it happened again when I was working in a hotel that had had previous outbreaks and someone who was quarantining in there who was a security guard was asking for a test. And instead of swabbing him on site, they said, no, you're gonna have to go out and initiate that by yourself. So even the ways in which we are supporting people who need to isolate, who could possibly be asymptomatic is not working. There is a lot of things in this whole chain that aren't working, you know? Uh, there hasn't really been any clear keeping up. So like, I'm a casual worker, I go everywhere. The DHSS team leaders are also casual. They go everywhere, or not casual, but ongoing. They are at different hotels. So sometimes you rock up to a workplace. Some people do things this way. Some people do things that way. Women on the line. On community radio right around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You've just been listening to some of the key stories and messages delivered from Hope Matumbu and Sue Bolton during the online forum COVID-19 Response, Healthcare and Justice, Not Racism, hosted by Socialist Alliance on Saturday, July 13th. We'll now return to hear more. But I think that for countries like Australia and other places in the world, 
we have a lot of non-communicable diseases. So it's been a very long time since we've had a, a disease or an illness that's easily that can easily spread between people. Now that is a leveling thing. We're all on the same page because you don't know who has it, you don't know who doesn't have it. We know the risks of getting it. Um, and we need clear messaging on what people can do rather than blame. Now it makes me very, and, and now there are also simple things that can be fixed in this process because this is a learning process where we're all in this together. You know, we're not like other countries where maybe you're used to Ebola coming every year. So you're always going to have a little bit of a plan. It's been a long time since we've been there. And the last time, you know, that we were there was HIV and AIDS. Or sometimes there's still a lot of communicable diseases that affect my small minority populations that are still ongoing and affect their everyday lives, like people living with HIV and AIDS and that sort of thing, but that don't affect us on this white population part. And I think that that in relation with us being an individualistic culture and everything like that, our processes aren't working and they're not working quickly enough and they're not really thinking about how people's behavior. And when we talk about people's behavior, we also have to account for the differences in privilege, in class, all of these things that we've avoided talking about, um, injustices and that sort of thing, that's coming back to bite us in the butt. Um, and now if we use those things against each other, we're undermining trust. The biggest thing when you're trying to deal with a public health issue is to have trust. And you need to find out who people trust in their communities and why and get those people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like in Ireland, one of the best things that they had was using postal workers to reach out to the elderly and doing welfare checks. We can put this back in the hands of community and it's community that have done the best jobs at addressing things that the government hasn't even really thought of. You know what I mean? And this isn't to bash the government. It's just to say that we know each other and we know our own people well. And if they'd stop to listen or stop to see some of the good things that other people had done, then we wouldn't be in this place, right? So for instance, the Black Lives Matter protest, they made sure that everybody was wearing a mask and tried to distance wherever, made hand sanitizer free, encouraged it for people, said to people, if you work in, in, in a frontline position, here's the live stream, join us and, and try to mobilize people on the internet, whether they were missing out or whether they were there in person. We've only started to wear masks as a state this week. The evidence has been there from other places. Sue also believes in the capacity of community and has great concerns for the ways that punitive measures hinder public health initiatives. Someone who works for Medicine Sun Frontier, who has family in the tower blocks, was um, talking about this terrible punitive measures in different countries which have set things back and said that this was something which happened in 2014 in the Ebola outbreak in Africa. The punitive measures set back the public health response. And instead, we have to use the self-organisation of groups on the estates and in the broader community. And that has been what has help the residents. The government didn't feed residents in the estates. It was self-organisation by community groups. And that's the strength we need to tap into to fight the virus. The hierarchies that exist within the health system act as barriers to productive work. Hope speaks to this here. 
like a teamwork environment where people will listen to each other about the importance of data. So you also have nurses who are just about testing and this and not about why are you refusing a test? Do you know, like we need to be having a conversation. The thing with sexual health and HIV and AIDS and that sort of thing is about talking about these things. And the way that people talk to security guards as well is like, you're stupid if you don't know that or how many times do I have to tell you? That kind of language that comes out around people who are also like non-medical and the way that we support them, we need to be having conversations with each other, not judging people um, based on, on class or whatever. But because of the old world that we used to live in, sometimes you find doctors that aren't helpful. Sometimes doctors are just there because we need their signatures on the pathology form, but they sit around, people are on Facebook, people are having a great old time making money. They kind of got into this quarantine thing because it's, you know, it's fun and it's a change from their day-to-day -day life, but they're not there to be part of a team or part of a community. They're there to sign off. They're there because, you know, they need to swab or they're there because, you know, they, you know, they needed to make money because like they, the private place where they worked, you know, isn't really, you know, everything is COVID now. And some people are bored. Some people don't want to deal with the, you know, regular community members. So there's a lot of different people going through different things, but the messaging and the cohesiveness isn't there. It's lacking within the system and it's lacking in the way that they talk and deal with us. Women on the line. Hope raises. What more could the government be doing to support people through testing, particularly if given a positive result? But we're not supporting people. We're not supporting them in their languages. We're not, we're not supporting them. And that is a really big problem. How do you support people? Now, on day three of testing, I'm not really going to give people a hard time if they don't want to get tested. A lot of the time, they're fatigued, they're tired, they're wondering about, oh, what's the next step after this? I'm not going to give them too much of a hassle. It's day 11 where we say to people, you really should be getting tested. So sometimes we also have to realize that depending on where people are, they may be, they may be scared about different things. When I was in pop-up testing the other day, a woman drove through. Now we're getting a lot of people who have known confirmed contacts. She was a mess. Maybe, you know, she was a mess. She was crying. She's like, my husband is positive. What can I do? Can you get this expedited? Who can help me? We've got children at home. What can I do? I didn't have any answers for this poor woman. And to me, it seemed weird that there was no one, there, that there isn't anyone there to try and do some sort of social work aspect to people who have legitimate questions. So the whole thing about the housing tower residents testing positive and then getting sent back home, what kind of system is that? Why don't we have the supports correct for people? Or these are the, some of the things that people are going to worry about. Hope speaks to the way in which the casualization of the health sector is a public health risk during COVID-19. If we can't manage the actual frontline workers as well, if you get people moving around, so you see some of this community transmission stuff that's happened in aged care homes and in hospitals and in other places. So if the healthcare workers themselves and the casualization of health work leads to people moving around, that is a risk in itself. And everybody is moving around. There is no 
system for who works where and doing what. And so one of the systems I thought, and, and everyone's not properly trained. So some person can come in and it's their first time having done a swabbing shift or how I logged heads with the nurse that she didn't know that you have to write the reason why people are refusing a test. And she wouldn't listen to me. And she's like, I've worked many of, this, uh, of these shifts. I've never done that. So I could see it's like, if you've worked however many shifts you've come you've possibly compromised data because you've gone with this way of working that isn't right and no one's ever called you up on it and so you find people doing different things in different ways and it's not just security guards it's nurses themselves as well and I just think that the training and support needs to be done better for security guards, for nurses, for everyone across the chain, you know? And the other problem is that DHSS team leaders, some of them, they, they seconded from other places, you know? Once I worked with this person who was from more department of environment and that sort of thing. So depending on operational needs, they'll all get sent to different places. So they'll twiddle their thumbs and they'll be like, well, you're the expert, you know what you're doing. And it's like, you need to have it together and know what everyone is doing as well. Like, so they've got no training in epidemiology or public health. So sometimes they stand there looking shy or looking whatever, not really knowing what to do or not knowing the difference between a, a, a waste bag and a different bag so sometimes the you know they're in charge of ordering the stock and sometimes that stock may be ordered wrong because they don't know the things that they're dealing with so i think that we need to standardize practices and have manuals or training for people to support them now i'm not you know the other things that people are calling for people to resign or do this or do that i think that it's important for us to realize where we could do things better. And I don't really have a heads should roll attitude. I just think that there's lots of things that need to go in there and be fixed. And that's the thing that annoys me is seeing people who are there just to get a paycheck, just to get money. And when things become complicated or when there's social issues that need to be learned about and, and you know adapted to, they don't want to adapt. It's always the communities that should be adapting. You've just been listening to some of the key stories and messages delivered from Hope Matumbu and Sue Bolton during the online forum, COVID-19 Response, Healthcare and Justice, Not Racism, hosted by Socialist Alliance on Saturday, July 13th. Women on the Line is a community radio, national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Win on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au slash Women on the Line. Our theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Kabara. I'm Amy McMurtry and I hope you can tune in again next time.